This is Radio Stockdale. Welcome to Radio Stockdale. I'm Michael Sears at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. We have a guest host, Dr. Sean Baker. My colleague at the Stockdale Center is talking with Senior Fellow Alvin Townley, also at the Stockdale Center. This is a series of podcasts around Homecoming 50. Sean and Alvin begin a series to talk about that homecoming, the trials and tribulations of the POWs, and their wives and family at home. And now, here's Sean. Hello, and welcome to the second installment of a podcast series. I'm very excited to uh, uh, take part in with Mr. Alvin Townley, the author of Defiant, The POWs Who Endured Vietnam's Most Infamous Prison, The Women Who Fought for Them, and The ones who, the One Who Never Returned. In this episode, um, I'm going to ask Alvin, we're going to kind of go over what in many ways is kind of the unique nature of the Vietnam War, the strategy that was uh, used by the North Vietnamese in that conflict with the United States. It was uh, similar in many ways to the strategy they, they had used successfully against the French in the first Indochina War. And it's an interesting uh, thing to discuss because in many ways, the uh, POWs and the wives were more cognizant of uh, that strategy and its power than was the United States government for an extended period of time during that war, especially during the th- first three or four years of that war. So if I can start there, Alvin, and ask you to uh, talk about what you learned as you uh, researched your book about um, these efforts that the North Vietnamese made, not just militarily, but on the propaganda front. Well, Sean, thank you for having me. It's always nice to uh, be with you. And when you think about Vietnam, really, you look at a, uh, a struggle for independence that really started you know, when the uh, Japanese occupied um, uh, Vietnam during the Second World War. And then, you know, the Americans uh, liberated Vietnam and then the French, who are the old colonial power in Vietnam, stepped back in. And so uh, really that started what really kind of ended when the U.S. left Vietnam in in the 1970s. And so North Vietnam had long been dealing with the French, you know, back into the 1800s, certainly. But really during the 1950s, um, you know, the French Indochina War was raging between Vietnam and the French. And Vietnam learned how to beat a much larger and stronger and wealthier adversary. And so when the United States kind of took over the baton from the French in some ways, the Vietnamese were prepared in a way that the United States was not. And we were getting into a war that in many ways we didn't understand as well as we uh, would have liked to, I think, in retrospect. And um, our ally in South Vietnam was not as well understood as perhaps it could have been. And so I think we had a lot of issues here on the, on the U.S. front getting into that war, and Vietnam was well-positioned to take advantage of those. And so basically, North Vietnam knew there was no way it was really going to defeat us, you know, tank to tank and plane to plane, a man to man on the battlefield. So they relied on propaganda because they thought, you know, we're not going to be able to beat the Americans on the battlefield, but if we can turn world opinion against the Americans, if we can turn... American public opinion against the American government and their involvement in, in, uh, in Vietnam, 
that's how we win. And, you know, I think it's hard to argue that they were successful in some ways. Um, you know, the, when the U.S. ended up leaving, uh, you know, I think that's a, a war that we did not win. And, um, you know, it, it was a, a situation of, I think, America not uh, having the national will to, um, to go all in. And I think, by the way, I think that was a good thing that we didn't go all in in that situation. Uh, but, you know, a lot of that subversion of the American will when it came to Vietnam was because of you know, slow, the slow rub of, of propaganda. Now, I don't think all Americans necessarily believe some of the silly things that came out in terms of propaganda out of uh, North Vietnam and some of the things that we can talk about later that the POWs made up that were kind of jokes that, that got out. But I think that world opinion really did turn against the war and uh, North Vietnam was very uh, active in, in cultivating a, a, the opinion they wanted. And they also you know, just kept harping away um, at America, and they also use propaganda to keep their own people motivated as well. That's true, and um, uh, I think it's one of the interesting things about uh, uh, Admiral Stockdale's uh, great book, In Love and War, he and Sybil co-authored, is he meets a man by the name of Nguyen Cock Vien, who was uh, higher up in the uh, North Vietnamese Communist Party echelon, Stockdale is forced to uh, sit down with an interview with this guy, and he tells him, I was basically in charge of the propaganda front during the first Indochina war with the French, and I was in Paris. This, I found this very interesting. I was in Paris running that propaganda uh, campaign, and just as surely as we eventually wore down the will of the French public to back that war effort, we're going to be able to do the same thing with the United States. And it's very striking. Uh, uh, Stockdale in the book says, I had a sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach and almost a, a horror at hearing this because I thought, you know, give them enough time and, uh, uh, they'll they'll have success in that regard, and I think you're spot on in saying that you know there was an erosion of the public support of that war over the course of uh, four short years, really 1964 to 68, as a result of I think a, a very successful uh, operation on that propaganda front. Uh, they were very savvy. They used uh, not just their own radio broadcasts, but they had connections with uh, media, uh, left-wing and otherwise, in other parts of the world during that war and very effectively used it. One of the, and, I think, and, uh, and they, had a, they had a unique asset in Jim Stockdale and his fellow POWs. And so there, yes, they did. This is kind of where it comes back to the POW story is, you know, they uh, were very interested in intelligence. Somebody was shot down. They very much wanted to know about his aircraft and about his ship and about his mission and other targets. And I think they were fairly unsuccessful in getting a lot of good stuff out, out of, out of the POWs. And if they did know anything valuable, they might know something at the time when they were captured, but a couple months later, yeah. their intelligence value had really uh, fallen off a cliff, right? So that the American POWs were not really valuable for intelligence much longer or much after they'd been captured because uh, their information would be out of date anyway. Uh, but where they were mm -hmm. valuable, and, th and this is what you see uh, with Stockdale and Denton and Coker and Shoemaker and all these POWs who were 
harassed for uh, state propaganda statements for years is that um, they were Americans under the control to some degree of the North Vietnamese and the North Vietnamese thought they could coerce uh, anti-American statements out of them. And they were very effective in doing that. Generally, I think all the POWs um, tried, tried their best to not tell the North Vietnamese anything other than their name, rank, service number, and date of birth. But very quickly that became impossible once, um, you know, torture arrived on the scene and, uh, you know, the Americans were basically tortured into saying a number of things and torture can mean a, a wide variety of things. And everybody had their own breaking point and their own, um, you know, made their own personal decisions, uh, based on that. But at some point, pretty much everybody signed a statement that, um, that they wrote themselves under the, under the direction of, of an interrogator or an interrogator wrote for them and had them sign or they made recordings and, uh, and those were, you know, widely disseminated. And, you know, it's a terrible moment for the Americans that gave that statement or signed that statement because they felt horrible. They thought they were the only person in the whole Hanoi Hilton, the whole POW camp there that had done this, that had broken, that had betrayed their country and, and their oath. But then what they found is when they went back to their cell and, you know, confessed this, they found that, you know, their brother POWs had been through the same thing and they all understood. And their mission was still to get home uh, with honor. And, um, you know, that was the way they were able to to survive. And the North Vietnamese, on the other hand, I think had propaganda that worked with different audiences. You know, I think some, some people probably never would have believed, you know, these were genuine statements. Uh, the Americans also laced their statements with clues. Um, there's a, a gentleman named Nels Tanner from Tennessee uh, who wrote um, wrote a statement. Uh, he mentioned his squadron commander was Clark Kent, and somebody you know somebody else was um, Bruce Wayne, and you know using all these Batman Superman references. And the North Vietnamese didn't realize that, and they released this information. And then of course it got back to them. You know that. Basically, Nels Tanner played this big joke on him, which didn't sit well with North Vietnamese, and Nels, Nels Tanner paid a pretty high price for that. But um, you know, the American POWs certainly tried in their different ways to um, you know, lace those statements they did make with clues that showed they weren't serious and that um, you know hopefully would tip uh, would would reflect poorly on North Vietnam. Yeah, that's true, and I, I think the North Vietnamese had some encouragement, I think, from the success they had with the uh, Pilots in Pajamas uh, film series, if you've seen that. That thing comes across as fairly effective propaganda, and that was coerced, again, uh, uh, statements uh, by the uh, prisoners that were being filmed, and that thing was very effective. And I think you're right. And there was kind of curious, as in reading Jerry Denton's uh, account, Concomitant with that effort to extract propaganda from these guys, they also seriously tried to indoctrinate them, giving them a long series of lectures on the history of Vietnam and uh, the Battle of Dinh Pien Phu and so forth. And he, he was always a bit in wonderment why they, why they tried so hard to indoctrinate if they were able to extract the propaganda statements. I think they wanted to make their case. I mean, on, a personal, on a personal human level, I think, you know, you want someone to see your point of view, whether it's about you know your own country or about you know your political views, whatever it is. And so I think that they very much thought they were in the right. Uh, I think they wanted the Americans to see that because I think they felt the Americans had no idea what the situation yeah. really was. 
And I think that to some degree was accurate. You know, I don't think the Americans really understood much more than uh, there was a, a communist force in the North and a non-communist force mm-hmm. in the South. And that and the communism was the enemy, which which I understand. But I think the North Vietnamese saw it as much more nuanced and, and saw themselves as the, you know, they were the American colonist. You know, they were the American colonist trying to buck Great Britain. And uh, I think that felt justified uh, in themselves. And I think wanted the Americans to understand that. I, I don't know they ever thought that they would really take their point of view, but, um, you know, they, they could always hope. Yeah, it's just an, in, an interesting uh, contradiction in the fact that they would often t- describe themselves as, as humane and le- lenient and in their treatment of the very same guys that they were not treating humanely and leniently by any yeah, stretch yeah. of the imagination. That's, that's, that's true. However, it's interesting. Um, you know, the, the Americans, I think, thought some of the conditions and some of the food was almost inhumane. But at the same time, the the conditions for North Vietnamese citizens there in Hanoi you know, they were, you know, pho um, uh, soup is, you know, it's, it's not hearty. It's not a New England clam chowder. And, um, you know, during the war, the citizens in Hanoi had pretty, pretty weak soup. So the Americans weak soup was kind of on par with what the citizens of Hanoi were getting. And, you know, the medical attention for people in Hanoi was not great. And it was probably worse for the American POWs. But I think that the, um, the whole ability of North Vietnam to give a level of care was greatly hindered by um, just where they were in their development and also the war on top of that. Now, I, I certainly don't think that the North Vietnamese did a good job of following, you know, the Geneva Convention uh, guidelines and treating people the way they should have. I just think it was a little more nuanced than maybe we like to make it out to be sometimes. The United States wanted their POWs treated according to the Geneva Convention. However, the U.S. also didn't really want to declare war. They wanted to kind of keep this a, mil- a, a military action versus a war. In North Vietnam, North Vietnam, I said, well, it's not declared war. So you don't have Geneva Convention protections, which legally, you know, there's some there's some standing there. So that was a very interesting situation yeah. that that was existing there on the ground. You know, whether the Americans deserved uh, Geneva protection legally, certainly humanely they did, but uh, legally whether they did and, and whether North Vietnam was going to give it to them or not. Yeah. And, and I, if, if I recall the text of the Geneva Conventions does make, actually make space for people that are taking part in military operations that aren't necessarily wars. And it says you still have to treat those people according to the convention. Yeah, depending on what your lawyers um, say, right? I mean, I, th- I think. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it, as, as with any legal. Hours. Um, but I think certainly, you know, the, the means they used to extract the propaganda were, um, you know, actions that that should not have been taken certainly absolutely and it, it you're you're right to point out that the at least the american public uh for a long period of time didn't know how these men were being treated and civil uh, stockdale even mentions a an episode where she's talking to some of the wives on the east coast uh who have been talking to state department people and those State Department people told the, this group of wives that as far as they knew, their husbands were being held in private residences in North Vietnam and, in good conditions and teaching English as a second language. So um, that's a rather remarkable reflection of that level of ignorance. Um, and that kind of brings us to efforts of the wives on the home front and, you know, that that 
effort they made to make this kind of uh, information public, make it more well-known, and more importantly, get the government to admit what was going on. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the efforts of Sybil and Louise Mulligan and some of those other wives in that regard? Uh, sure. You know, the, uh, in many ways, neither the North Vietnamese government nor the American government were, were angels in this situation, in this, in this conflict, and uh, particularly when it came to the prisoners of war. And um, when the North Vietnam began taking prisoners of war, when the United States began losing airmen over North Vietnam, the military developed a policy that the wives called the keep quiet policy. And basically when a wife was informed that her husband or a mother was informed her son or, you know, whatever the relationship was, when somebody was lost, that family was asked not to say anything. Maybe ask is the wrong word. Maybe they were told not to say anything because that might damage um, uh, the, the negotiations that were ongoing. There were no real ongoing negotiations or it might endanger uh, the lives of their loved one. Um, you know, which is a little bit of a stretch. And so the wives being, I think, military wives who'd grown up in that system um, obeyed that for the most part uh, for a little while. So they started to wonder whether the government was being straight with them. And when they began to talk with other wives and, you know, uh, bits of intelligence were getting back and they finally put two and two together and realized that, you know, their husbands were not being well-treated and the government was doing very little to help. And if, if not outright misleading the wives. And so, you know, Sybil Stockdale on the West Coast, Jane Denton, Louise Mulligan. But I think these wives began to get together and, and you know, form a form a really extraordinary movement that was led by women, which is one of the most, you know, really the National League of POW MIA families, which this movement became, I think, is one of the most extraordinary women's movements in American history. And, and very few people really know the story of that. Uh, so I think when people look at that POW MIA flag that flies all over the place, uh, on American soil, they don't realize exactly what it stands for. And what it stands for is these families, um, you know, standing up and promising the POWs that they would not be forgotten and that they would be brought home. Yeah, it is an extraordinary story. And I know uh, we've had this conversation kind of offline before. It's a story that uh, I think is very well told in Jim and Sybil's book in Love and War. I love the fact that they alternate the chapters and she gets to tell the full story of, of the wife's efforts. And it is one of those stories that I just can't comprehend why it has not been made into uh, at least a feature length film, uh, better yet a series, something like on HBO or Showtime like that. Uh, it, it is a, because it's such a, a story that took up, place over such a long period of time and has uh, the wives interacting not only with the U.S. government, not only with their husbands clandestinely through the uh, Office of Naval Intelligence and the CIA, uh, but also with the media and the North Vietnamese. They actually take a, a trip over there uh, with uh, Ross Perot um, uh, funding. Uh, hey, listen, listen. For we the have, tickets uh, to confront these guys directly. We have we have certainly tried to uh, get defiant, put on the screen, and you know um, have have been out there swinging with it. And unfortunately, you know it hasn't been right for any studios at that time. Which is which is a refrain that you know I think anyway pitches a um, pitches a uh, you know screen idea gets. It's it's just you know you hear the response. It's wonderful. It's just not right for us right now. 
And so, you know, unfortunately we hadn't found the right home. If anyone listening to this knows the right home, uh, certainly <laughs> let us know. So we really, really would love to, to get it out. Um, particularly while the POWs, you know, are still with us uh, so they can see it um, and see how the nation yes. remembers them. Yeah. And the wives too. I mean, they need, they need to be given the recognition. It's just an incredible story of resilience an incredible story of bravery and courage, uh, being persistent with the government to come clean with the, uh, with the American public about the state that their uh, husbands were in, horrible conditions that were being held. And uh, a great object lesson, I would say, for military families in general, especially in times of uh, uh, war. Uh, it's an object lesson not only for the men who will be fighting those wars, but the families that will be left behind here and having to deal with that uh, separation, the anxiety and uncertainty and the dearth of information that, that really comes across in those narratives. Responsibility the government had to give them information, but failed to do so. And you have to say the same thing for the North Vietnamese, not abiding by those Geneva Conventions. They uh, were more than willing to keep families here in the dark not only about status, but about whether or not their husbands were alive. Powerful story. And that kind of uh, leads us, I guess, to uh, I'd say the wrap-up here. Um, what I would like to do next time, Alvin, is uh, expand on the story a bit and get your thoughts and opinions on uh, the role that the uh, fight, U.S. Fighting Man's Code of Conduct played uh, on the uh, side of the POWs in formation of their strategy in dealing with the uh, pressure that the North Vietnamese were placing upon them, but uh, also uh, its role back here uh, with the wives. They were quite well aware of the code of conduct and uh, had some criticisms of some of the things the uh, U.S. government was doing in regard to what they believed the code required, not only of those men, but of themselves. So uh, I guess with that kind of promissory note, uh, I'll ask you if you have any parting shots, and then we will call it an episode, Alvin. No, sure. Yeah, I think um, you know, the theme was, theme was propaganda, and um, I think that the North Vietnamese ended up being uh, very effective in swaying world opinion and swaying and, and maintaining their own people's um, I think dedication because, you know, they were, it was not an easy war for anyone in North or South Vietnam. And so um, you know, keeping their own populations committed to the fight was very important. Um, I don't think that their opinion, I don't think the POW propaganda itself really swayed people in America very much. Um, but I think that the overall propaganda um, that they were able to, uh, to put out and the spin they were able to put on things and um, even, even the success they had with, um, you know, with Tet, uh, the Tet Offensive in uh, 68, I think, which was a military victory for the United States. But the spin became that it was a, you know, it, it showed that North Vietnam was much stronger than anyone thought. And they were able to spin that in a, in a way that, to your point, in 1968, that's when the real slide in American public opinion happened uh, or began to happen. And it never, it never really recovered. Uh, so I think that, um, you know, unfortunately, the, we didn't talk too much about the torture methods, but, you know, the way they got the, the propaganda was, um, you know, was not right. 
uh, but the way the Americans were able to bounce back from those experiences and getting worked over was pretty extraordinary. And as we'll talk about next time, you know, it was the code of conduct and they're in their own adaptations of that. Uh, some of some of their own yep. mission statements and rules they had there in the camps that really let them uh, persevere and be resilient and get back on their feet after uh, after those sessions and after making those statements. That sounds like a great preview of our next episode, Alvin. I don't think I can add much to it. Um, we will talk about the code and sometimes it, it, it's sometimes sometimes conflicting elements and how these. Uh, men were able to reconcile those conflicting elements and, and uh, come home healthy, intact, with honor. Uh, so that will be next time. And until next time, this is Sean Baker of the Stockdale Center and Alvin Townley. And we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Alvin. You've been listening to Radio Stockdale, a series of podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. You can hear more podcasts at stockdalecenter.com slash podcasts. 